you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. Sweet Solutions. Yeah, we're going to be talking some sweet solutions because Seek You Action is about being adaptable and knowing when it's appropriate and not to make those adaptations. When it comes to meeting the needs of the underrepresented in architecture and the built environment, it's important that we look to create equity by looking for how we can make relevant changes to our systems. And joining me now to speak about this is Siraj Mitha, Amy Francis-Smith, Annette Fisher and Professor Katrina Jackman. Um, I'd like to start with you, Siraj. And uh, what I'd like you to do is introduce yourself and briefly describe an adaptation that's worked for you in your career, either that you've come across or that you've created yourself. Um, Well, thank you very much for having me this morning, Marsha. It's great to be on the radio. Um, So, yeah, my name is Siraj. Um, I am an architect. Um, I've practised for the last three years at Stanton Williams Architects, working um, in a team there on the New Museum of London. Um, and I now um, run the Accelerate program as part of Open Cities Outreach, uh, and I also teach uh, undergraduate architecture at the Bartlett. So the question was uh, an adaptation program that has worked for me in, in the past. Yeah, or indeed uh, that you've created. Well, so um, one of the things that we did at Stanton Williams was create um, a sort of uh, virtual outreach program. It was during the time of the pandemic, which would be broadcast to participating secondary schools to introduce them to possibilities of studying architecture, going into study and practice, what it means to be an architect, how can you sort of sign up, how can you get involved? And then we sort of, so me and a team of architects there um, sort of answered questions as, as we um, gave this sort of um, really interesting presentation to them. Yeah. Really interesting. We'll deep dive into that in a moment. Um, Annette, if I can ask you to introduce yourself and briefly describe an adaptation that's worked for you in your career, either that you've come across or you've created yourself. Morning, Marsha. Thanks very much for having me here again. Um, well, for the first time, rather. Uh, my name is uh, Annette Fisher. Uh, I'm an architect um, and I'm chair of Let's Build, which, is, um, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and I'm also... Um, uh, partner of FA Global and co-chair of Union, a um, consortium of female-led architects practices. Um, in terms of uh, an adaptation, I, I would talk about Let's Build, which we started um, in 2019 before the pandemic, uh, which uh, was, we we started that to showcase and celebrate uh, practices uh, that are led by diverse individuals um, as a way of, first of all, um, bringing uh, awareness in the environment to uh, those people from underrepresented backgrounds, women and uh, others, uh, you know, in this environment for people to know that, you know, we exist. 
Okay, we'll definitely deep dive into that shortly. Uh, Amy Francis-Smith, if I can get you to do the same, introduce yourself and briefly describe an adaptation that's worked for you in your career, either that you've come across or you've created yourself. Well, uh, morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Amy Francis-Smith. I'm the Vice President of the Birmingham Architecture Association. I'm a disabled architect and I specialise in access consultancy um, particular focus on inclusive design and accessible architecture for disabled people and elderly people. Um, I suppose my personal adaptation is that I ended up having to take a four-day week because I had chronic illnesses, which meant that I needed that bit of flexibility and time there to have recuperation. And I suppose in terms of a very physical um, thing that I use, I use a sit-stand desk, which means I can you know, not have a stiff back and can actually... Um, sort of focus on my work a bit more without sort of being sat all day. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. And finally, uh, Professor Katrina Jackman, if you could introduce yourself and briefly describe an adaptation that's worked for you in your career, either you've come sure. across. Mm. Good morning, everybody, and, and thank you for having me. So I'm not an architect. Um, I'm a physicist, actually. Uh, so I'm Professor Katrina Jackman. I'm a senior professor at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, and I'm a planetary scientist. So I study Jupiter, Saturn, and lots of other magnetized planets in our solar system. But one of the major initiatives uh, which I have benefited from and which is currently running in Ireland is something called the Senior Academic Leadership Initiative, SALI, S-A-L-I. And that is a scheme whereby the Irish government and specifically the Higher Education Authority recognized that specific action needed to be taken to address the significant gender imbalance at the higher levels of academic leadership. And so they set aside a part of funding to facilitate the recruitment of um, women and other minorities into the, the higher echelons of academic leadership, uh, specifically professorial positions in universities and research institutes across Ireland. So that scheme is proving really successful in, in beginning to address uh, some of those imbalances um, in higher academic leadership. So Katrina, I think some people may have thought it's strange that I invited an astrophysicist to come to talk to architects in the built environment. But when I heard about the Sally scheme um, uh, and you were, that you were part of, I, I really wanted the opportunity to hear from you um, to share it about a possible way that we could potentially look to support women in the profession. So Katrina, if you don't mind just sharing, what was the process for you like? What, what did you actually have to do to, to get onto this scheme? Well, it was an open competition. So it's the onus is on the institutes or the universities to uh, secure a post, which they then advertise uh, in open competition. And so the step that had to be taken initially by universities or institutes was to demonstrate their need for a position like this. So to demonstrate their need for that funding. And that is through quantifying what their current balance is, but also listing out some of the initiatives that they've already tried and some of their plans into the future for how they will um, address uh, gender inequality and inclusion, inclusion and diversity. And so uh, the institute where I'm based now, the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, put together a case uh, for one of these Sally positions, which uh, they then received the funding for, and then they advertised it as an open competition and I applied and did a Zoom interview uh, as, as is the way these days 
and I was appointed uh, just this year. So the actual pot of funding, it's a government pot, is it? Yes, it's it's a scheme through the Higher Education Authority. So it's, it's being uh, rolled out across institutes and universities uh, throughout the Republic of Ireland. And so uh, my position is in physics, but there are also Sally positions across all uh, different um, parts of academia. So not just in the sciences, but in any area where a case can be made for the need for increased uh, diversity in those higher levels of academic leadership. I mean, physics is a particularly uh, imbalanced area. So, uh, you know, I have worked obviously in physics for, for my entire career and in astronomy and space science. And it's not uncommon for me to be in scenarios where the male to female ratio is 10 to one. I've been in scenarios where it's 15 to one. I'm kind of used to it, but uh, clearly uh, there is a need to address the reasons behind those kind of imbalances and there are arguments to be made uh, for the fact that uh, implementing quotas can significantly accelerate progress towards equality. Well, thank you, Katrina, for now. Um, That must sound very interesting to you, Annette, especially in light of the work that you've been doing. So tell me a little bit more about Let's Build It and and Union as well. Well, yeah, I mean, actually, that's very, um, very exciting to hear about that, Sally, because definitely when we started Let's Build, one of the key reasons was also was not just celebrating, but so that the establishments would know that there were people of uh, this level and calibre of um, knowledge and experience in the built environment um, that could be recruited to these um, senior levels. Because definitely, you know, in... um, in the, uh, if you look at the boardrooms or board board levels of, you know, arch- not just architectural practices, but any of the built environment organisations, there is a, you know, a significant lack of both women and people of colour um, in those positions. And, you know, th- we need people in those positions because that is when we can affect change. Um, and very often the, d- the discussion is, oh, we couldn't find anybody who looked like, you know, who, who looked like them. We couldn't find anyone of that, of that ill. And so, um, you know, that's the other reason for Let's Build. So there's no excuse, you know, um, and um, uh, in, in doing that. And uh, talking about union, union is um, it's actually a new collaborative, which uh, we set up in January of this year. Um, it's a, co- um, a consortium of female-led architects practices. And we set it up um, because... Um, as of last year, Southwark put out had put out a a, a um, framework to attract new and diverse practices to it for their um, you know for their uh, for their projects and and their um, uh, budget new sort of four hundred billion budget and at the end of it um, they had one hundred and ten practices and not one of them were black led or you know and so they put it out again in December. And so I called up um, these women, uh, Terry and Helen and Cheryl, um, Anna Maria and Angeline, and said, you know, what what do you know? What can we do to win this? And um, ask them if they would like to to come together to create this consortium and submit uh, a bid for for the framework. Um, and um, I'm happy to say that you know, not only did we uh, we shortlisted and then we interviewed and then we. 
um, you know, and then we found we've made it made it onto the list. And not only did we make it onto, we had applied for three lots. Not only did we make it onto the list, we made it onto two um, quite significant lots, not the new practice lots, um, but on uh, one for residential and for commercial. Um, and for for us, this is a real breakthrough because, as you know, um, it's a as a collective of women and not just women, but diverse women, women of color getting onto a framework like this and for small practices as well um this is um quite um uh, quite a big big deal and, and i have to i'm happy to say that also lhc and southwark who we had to jump through a number of hoops with are also excited for us to be there so yeah that's what it's about that's, that sounds really good. And, and we'll delve a little bit into sort of what kind of adaptations the councils have considered as a result of taking you on as well. Um, just a, a point about uh, uh, Professor Katrina Jackman. She's based in the Republic of Ireland. So the funding that uh, has been created for the Sally scheme is, is from the Irish government. So it's only available in Ireland, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a scheme that I think that maybe we can uh, we can learn from. Um, Siraj, tell me a little bit about, you know, the kind of adaptations that you've been working on and the mentoring schemes as well yes um so i'm i'm currently involved in this uh program called accelerate which is a um which is involved in encouraging 16 to 18 year olds from underrepresented backgrounds in uh, all across london to explore professions in the built industry so architecture planning engineering landscape architecture as a means to sort of widen participation um, but also democratize the processes regarding our built environment um, the, pro the program's been running for 10 years. I've been running it for four months, so I'm in a very fortunate position to inherit this like incredibly strong thing that has a lot of momentum now. A lot of people know about it. And, um, yeah, the, it, it runs... We have sort of 12 workshops that run between October and May. Um, we invite uh, built industry professionals to come and mentor um, uh, uh, as part of that. So they, uh, the students are delegated to each practice for one-to-one -one mentoring for, uh, uh, I think, a total of 12 hours. And the whole thing sort of culminates in a uh, summer exhibition. And as part of that, we offer uh, industry professionals the opportunity to come and teach, to come and mentor, to come and uh, facilitate certain uh, particular sessions. And the whole thing is, is fantastic. It's got this sort of amazing track record now. In, in its 10th year, I think we've helped 350 uh, young people gain access to the profession. Um, and, it's, and it's working well. We're looking to, you know, it's fantastic. We are looking to expand. And you know, some of the things that Annette, is uh, is saying absolutely relevant you know it's this is one part of the journey um providing access to young people into those professions but it's then about how do we uh, create um opportunities for them to gain positions of authority how do we keep them within the profession how do we support them on that journey to actually becoming an architect rather than um getting them into into university and then facing the obstacles um that that people have to face and then maybe dropping out um prematurely from those courses so um, the Accelerate course has been working fantastically. We are looking to expand and we would like to sort of continue that support along the journey. 
or find out how uh, you can be supported in just a moment. But Amy, um, certainly, you know, adaptations that that work are, are something that you're maybe still campaigning a little bit for. But um, you know, can you can you share a little bit more about you know you've made some personal adaptations for yourself, but when it comes to amplifying the disability voice in architecture, be it you know getting um, attracting uh, those who are disabled into the profession as well as progressing them through architecture as well as progressing them through um, practice and in terms of you know accessible design and products and services there's still quite a lot of work to do I'm sure which you're you're trying to to work on so explain some of the work that you're doing yeah it's it's, it's definitely a multi-pronged uh, tactic that I'm trying to come up partly through um sort of bringing students into the architecture profession in the first place and being people with more diverse um, sort of on the spectrum of disability. Uh, I do quite a lot of teaching at universities to try and educate our future architects around inclusive design and it's more than just you know part M building regs or you've got a ramp and a lift and that's about it. Um, it's so much more detailed than that and I always compare it to sort of how we would have eco-design and maybe 15, 20 years ago where you've got a solar panel and you've got a green roof, so it's eco, but is that really an accessible space? And it's it's also about acknowledging who's currently in our industry as well. The ARB only really uh, registers 1%, I think 1% of architects who are disabled, who are self-declaring disabled anyway. Um, but... The, the UK population is 19% who are disabled as the largest minority group. So there's a huge misrepresentation of people. Um, there's an awful lot of designing for the disabled. It's kind of this, this, over, this old knowledge uh, oversight of um, like, we need to pity them. They're, they're poor people who need assistance rather than having action and autonomy for themselves. So I'd like to see more disabled people doing the designing uh, for one. Um, and a lot of my work also is about seeding that idea into designers' minds about the fact that there is a huge amount of, there's 14.1 million disabled people in the UK who largely aren't really being addressed in multiple uh, areas. Obviously that could be a physical mobility, could be a wheelchair user, could be a vision impairment or a hearing impairment. And the way that we're designing isn't helping people. It's, it's really restricting people's lives. And that's something that I do quite a lot of campaigning for and lobbying governments to um, change legislation to try and um, make people aware that there's more, it's a social responsibility there. Yes, I mean, like you say, massive job. And we have been speaking about all of those things on, on Reba Radio, so people can listen back to some of those those points as well. Um, Katrina, uh, one of the wonderful things about, you know, you you being in a role is, is being able to, to role model for others. Um, but that can be quite a burden to bear at times. How do you manage uh, that kind of role modelling uh, perspective as well? Yeah, absolutely. It can be tough because I'm only human and I, I make lots of mistakes. Uh, but I, of course, I do my best to be a role model for, for all of my team and my group. And I suppose over the years of my career, I have come across various barriers to progression. And increasingly, as I've you know, progressed to the, the higher levels of academic leadership, it is often the case that I'm maybe the first female to be on a particular committee or be in a particular position. And, 
And that almost requires me to be an agent for change. Uh, so, for example, um, when, uh, you know, when I had my first child uh, six years ago now, um, you know, myself and my husband were uh, shared parental leave in our respective universities. He, he was in academia at the time, too. And so it's kind of trailblazing in terms of just, just getting our heads around how the admin of that was going to work. And we were extremely well supported. And I was at the University of Southampton at the time. And he was at uh, UCL, University of College London, not, not far from where uh, your recording is happening today. So uh, sometimes it's a pain when you're the first person to, uh, to do something. And then there are some sort of logistical hurdles to get over. But I also feel immensely privileged by the mentors that I've had and the barriers that some of them have broken. And so I think there, you know, things like the Sally scheme are big steps. They are, uh, you know, centrally funded by government. They, they make a big statement about a commitment to uh, equality and diversity. But there are also so many small steps which can work across any field, just in terms of changing the day-to-day -day culture of a workplace. So, you know, I, I've had many years of being spoken over in meetings, for example. So now, a very practical thing, which we do in my group meetings, where we have our round table of eight or nine of us every week, is I chair, and then everybody has to put up their hand before they speak, and then I call on them in the order in which they put their hand up. So everybody is heard, everybody's opinion is equally respected, and nobody is ever interrupted. And it's, it's, it's so simple and, it, you know, it's so obvious, but actually that, that does feed into a culture where I, I think that everybody feels uh, respected. So I'm just, I'll just give one, one other example of something which uh, we found works well is, is having a core hours policy. So saying our core working hours for our institute are 10 a.m. to 4 and so for anyone who has, for example, a caring responsibility or if they're dropping you know, children off at, at school or childcare, there are no regular meetings scheduled that start at 9 a.m. because that might be difficult for those people to get to. So that just facilitates uh, people making their work work around their personal lives. And those small changes, I think, just also indicate an institute's willingness to uh, just to support its employees and to, to get the best out of a diverse workforce. I saw you, Amy, on the Zoom there nodding your head away along with what uh, Katrina was saying around about some really simple changes that can be made that have actually quite a profound impact on people's ability to feel included in the workplace. Yeah, completely. Well, well definitely I was agreeing with the, uh, the ratio of 10 to 1 in a room as well, which... Um, I've equally experienced a few times and I uh, I really like the, the putting up the hand implementation sort of I'm holding the speaking stick kind of thing. Um, I think the, the the pandemic has actually been, although awful in many, many ways, it's been hugely uh, eye-opening, especially with uh, remote working and sort of flexible hours from sort of working from home, which is something that disabled people, mothers, parents, uh, many, many people for many years have been asking for, and it just hasn't been something that's been uh, believed to be uh, effective. Um, I think we've all proved that to be uh, wrong now. And it actually means that 
you're opening up such a, a diverse and pool, like diverse pool of knowledge of, of talent that's out there of people that were previously not able to fit into the nine to five box where you do your commute every single day. And it now means that um, so many more disabled people or parents are now able to engage in the workspace and actually um, companies can actually harness their insight of those employees and sort of help to drive market innovation and sort of, um, sort of retain top talent who would have maybe previously gone, oh, I can't, I can't do your rigid um, time timings. So, and, and flexible working, I think recently, only in the few days, there's been some research that's come out that um, proves that it will boost the economy by 55 billion pounds a year. And by refusing to have flexible working, it's, it harms the economy by 2 billion. So even just on like a financial level, it makes complete sense. Um, I suppose the, uh, the sort of, the, the, the sort of tips that you can help to have people get into the workplace is around sort of obviously more specifically around maybe uh, people with disabilities. It's around learning that, you know, you legally have a right to have reasonable adjustments put in place. And there are things that are out there, such as the Government Access to Work Fund, which is a, a grant scheme that means that employees and employers have uh, a pot of money to be able to help with, I don't know, maybe you need a taxi to work or you might need a, a sign language interpreter at some point for a meeting or a large conference. Or um, it might just be training for the, the company, for the other members of the staff. Um, so there was quite a lot of um, aid out there that not many people know to tap into. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the points that is being made here in the studio as well is that uh, that sense that, you know, having that government support and that state support really does make a difference in being able to actually create change and, and, and push for change. I mean, you know, one of the things that's happened for you, Annette, is that the councils who were looking at their procurement have made some adaptations so union can come on board. Tell us about that. Well, I think it was a bit more of us perhaps fighting our corner. Um, but I think that um, definitely when we went in uh, for the bid, we went in quite obviously as a new organisation. Well, whilst union is new, the members, though, are, you know, have many years, over 30 years, people like myself, Terry and Sumita, experience in, in practice and in running projects. And I think for them, they they did recognise that. Now, um, definitely they had um, certain, you know, rules and that, that they wanted us to, to um, abide by, which we... Um, which we did to a, to a certain extent. But then, you know, for example, they had wanted us to give, for example, uh, financials for, um, you know, for our, each of our practices. And we had to hit back and say, well, actually, you know, your rules state that if you are, um, if any member in your group are uh, 20% or um, are less than 20%, then you don't have to do an individual application for each um, member of the group. You can do one um, complete application. Um, and even when we uh, submitted uh, additional information, they came back and said, oh, yes, we want the financials. And I said, well, we're, we're following your rules. Um, but based on your rules, you, you asked us for option 
um, you had an option A, B and C. We chose option C. And now you would like us to do option A. And whilst we understand the reasons for your needing that, um, you know, we don't feel that this, uh, you know, we've abided by what you've um, you've given us. Um, and what we said to them was, you know, and they said to us, this was the first time they've ever had anything like this. Um, and we said, well, the only way for you to know that this could work is if you test it and put us on that list. Um, but having come through through it that one of the things they did say was um, uh, later on afterwards when we had the onboarding process was they said Annette when we had the interview with all of you um, you guys just smashed it out the park I mean and and from that we will never do this without interviews um, and I think in the past these frameworks have been done just through numbers and and information on a page um, but it just shows goes to show that um, they could see from when we met with them that um, we had more than enough um, you know kudos experience and knowledge to be able to be part of it yeah, certainly there's something about educating the system, those who, who are in charge with in, enforcing the system as well isn't there Siraj? Yeah I mean uh, I think that like uh, local council support is incredibly important you need to sort of be able to prove your success in um, in, in with their support I think that um, Burris, we're sort of like uh, Open City has existed you know, in a similar way for 30 years and Accelerate is, has existed for 10. If you know, We talked earlier about state, about state support. Um, it would be um, fantastic to see more local boroughs come in. Accelerate exists. Uh, Accelerate has um, students come from every borough, from literally all across London. And in the past, we've had um, fantastic relationships with Camden. We've had re relationships with Southwark. This year, we've got a relationship with um, London Borough of Barking and Dagenham, which is um, incredible. But, you know, it sort of exists year on year, um, literally by the generosity of these organisations and the support of these organisations. And I think that um, moving forwards people need to have a, a little bit more trust they need to do um, their research and understanding the success that we're sort of generating from these programs in introducing and diversifying the fields in architecture and the built environment um, it would be fantastic to see you know Katrina talks about um, state support in Ireland that would be absolutely fantastic you know to not have to I mean I, I'm, I'm you know it's fine to uh, to propose it's fine to go in for bids for sponsorship and we can continue to do that but I just I, I, I suppose if we were to be met halfway, if the sort of trust factor was there with the with the government, then perhaps it wouldn't it wouldn't sort of rest on a knife edge each year, and it wouldn't rest on a few people uh, and their absolute incredible generosity to make these really really important programs work. So you do need support, though. So let, let, let's let's park for the moment that you know we need to get government involved in and in, in trying to you know create all kinds of schemes, not just for architecture. Um, but at the moment, you know, a, a mentorship scheme like Accelerate needs support. So what kind of support can you, are you wanting to So get yeah, there's, there's several different ways to support the programme. I mean, like um, each year, like I say, you know, we've got um, mentor practices. So that's architects, engineers, um, planners. Um, design review panels, people who sign up and, and sort of dedicate their time to training our young people, to training our students. Um, we have uh, a sort of plethora of volunteers who help at each of the 12 workshops, give up their sort of Saturdays and, um, and help take the students through whatever activities we have planned. Then, of course, there's financial support. So we try and 
you know, the things that we um, supply each student with, with the sort of staff, the sort of paid staff that take that take part in the programme, the materials that um, we are able to sort of um, give to the students, the places that we're able to take them, really exciting venues across London. All of these things require sort of a level of financial support, a level of vo- volunteer support, um, and each year sort of rely on on that and the generosity of those people who believe in the programme. Obviously, you're working in London. That's right. Yeah. Um, do you know of and can are there other programmes outside of London that you can advocate for at all? Outside of London? I'm not entirely familiar. I mean, the, the RIBA has a sort of national schools programme, which, which I know is very successful. And um, we would like to sort of partner with the RIBA, actually, in bringing the Accelerate programme outside the M25. That would be fantastic. I think that these programmes are successful, but they shouldn't be, um, they shouldn't be confined to London. I think that there'd be massive interest in in cities like Birmingham, Manchester, Cardiff, everywhere. I think people, young people deserve the opportunity to at least explore the opportunity of of studying, operating, working in in the built-in industries. Yeah, so it would be fantastic to to see a sort of expansion of these programmes, to see a partnership with with the RIBA and to sort of work in collaboration rather than perhaps in competition in the future. That would be great. You've got my number. Um, <laughs> <Thanks so much. laughs> Katrina, if I can come to you, because um, one thing is, you know, it's it's all well, well and good sort of having these um, quotas and having uh, this diversity of people coming in and being supported financially. But when you get into these positions, um, being able to work within a culture of inclusion is something that perhaps is, is the next step. So um, what's it like for you? I know you talked about some, still sometimes being the only. Um, how do you help others to create a culture of inclusion and what more do you think can be done to to create those cultures that's a great question and i think so far today we've talked a lot about um sort of how of making uh places more more diverse and more inclusive but i think it's really important to to step back occasionally and remember why why are we doing this why you know, why should we not just have all male heterosexual men, all male men, um, all, you know, all of one particular demographic, for example, um, in a field? Because if you're with people who are like you, one would argue that maybe, you know, it's just easier because you know how each other think. So uh, certainly over the years uh, in, in physics and astronomy, I've Sadly, I come across many people who just roll their eyes at the diversity agenda. They just don't see the need for it. They think it's it's a box-ticking exercise at best. Um, and really, I feel like we need to win over a certain proportion of those people if we're going to make significant progress. And I really think it's important to have buy-in at all levels in an institute for the diversity um, agenda. So uh, a really nice example of how that worked well uh, was in the University of Southampton, uh, where, where I was previously based up to 2019. And there we were putting together an application for something called the Athena Swan, so a charter which is centered around diversity and inclusion. And there was an almost unspoken policy that it was men who were going to lead that. And in so many 
other environments, sadly, um, the, you know, the minority group are put in charge of fixing the problems, so to speak, for the minority group. And actually, in Southampton, it worked so well that uh, because there were several men who were leading um, the gender equality charge, there was just a more broad buy-in to that and more people were recognizing why it was important. So it's just it's coming back again to this question of why, you know, why is a workplace better when it's diverse? Well, my view on that is because it, you avoid uh, what you call um, groupthink. So you avoid just having a load of people who all just automatically agree with each other. Having um, a diverse workplace brings more creativity. It brings more energy. It brings uh, just a, a breadth of a worldview. And certainly in science and indeed in architecture as well, you know, creative areas you want to have that, that mix. You want to have people challenging those ideas. And so how you get that buy-in from people uh, varies depending on their level of eye-rolling at the gender um, agenda uh, or the diversity agenda. So there are a couple of ways to do it. You can appeal to their better nature. You can tell them that if they're going to apply for funding, they won't get it unless they have signed up to a particular charter. Um, those are kind of the two extremes of the scale, but there are uh, there are various techniques which which can and should be applied to to get that that, that wire wider uh, buy in, and I think that's that's really crucial. Amy, you award winning <laughs> um, uh, disability um, uh, campaigner, um, this sense of needing to get that buy in from those who have the power and the authority to actually make the change has been quite crucial, something that you've been working very hard on. Yeah, well, people have power at all different levels. So, it, you know, okay, yes, it's government legislation or it's sort of wider, far-reaching organisations, but it's also, you know, internal working groups inside a specific company where you, you're like, Katrina was going on about, um, you know, the whys and trying to convince people why it's beneficial and it's it's sort of, trying to convince, uh, even get a commitment from the leadership team to, to sort of evaluate and review and have people come around together rather than it being driven from the minority groups who have got together to try and fix the problem. Like it needs to be, there's a, a bottom up and a top down approach. And um, it's, it's always, I think it's always a really pertinent question to ask who isn't in the room and why aren't they there? Um, and quite often, um, you know, it could even just be physically, like, can they even physically get in the building? Are you working in an office space or an environment or a lab or, a, you know, a construction site? Can people physically get there? Can they even engage with the conversation? Um, and if not, why not? And talk, start asking those difficult questions. And it doesn't have to be asking your director or it doesn't have to be asking your, you know, your associate or team leader. It could also be, asking the shopkeeper or it's the events manager or it's the um you know it there's the right to mp even there's there's bigger implications about um taking responsibility as an advocate as an ally of realizing that okay well i've got here but how can i then help others come along after me 
Annette, if I can give you the final word <laughs> around that, that advocacy and allyship uh, that's required from, from the wider sector, uh, what are you looking for um, and, and what would you recommend uh, that people did in order to demonstrate not just allyship but that um, active advocacy and coalition with the underrepresented in, uh, in the built environment and architecture? Um, well, I think what I'd like, what I would say is, you know, I, I'm sort of very tired of the rhetoric. Um, and it's, 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 it's about, you know, demonstrating and doing these things. Um, where you have, um, for example, um, you know, uh, Katrina, you talked about the why. Um, and, you know, when we started Let's Build, We've actually evolved from when we started and started um, um, presenting. We've now um, uh, started something called the Let's Build Academy because we recognize that the greatest attrition um, for um, underrepresented in architecture is that they are at the part one. After the first, they've got their first degree, they want to get their first job and they can't get that job. And so what we want to try and do is partner, which is, and actually that's sort of coming off from, from um, Siraj, um, the 16 to 18 year olds, you know, so, so that they can, um, we want to partner uh, um, um, part ones with uh, practices. And what we want those practices to do is to sign up to the academy with an annual membership. We would like to offer them a, all their social value and, um, EDI recruitments for that year and we will mentor that student um, and and uh, which they will need that guidance during that first year of employment because for sure when a, when a person of color black or brown goes or disabled goes into a practice you know they will invariably be in the minority that you know one in 10 one in 15 and they're going to need that support so you know it's about uh, you know seeing it it's seeing is believing you know if you're going to be uh, uh, inclusive in your practice have the disabled have the brown have the women have the have them there in your practice you know it's it's not enough to say i'm diverse and you and we go to the board to your website and to your board um and we look at your board and all that's there is one demographic white male um what does that do for you i mean we need the collective genius of all of us in order to make a change and to make a difference to not just the built environment, but to the issues of climate change and everything that's happening on this planet. We need all of us to bring our collective experiences to the table. And until we are in the boardrooms, top down, bottom up, boardrooms and at the grassroots, we are not going to be able to really affect and make that difference and make that change. A rallying cry from Annette Fisher to end on. Thanks to Siraj Mitha, Amy Francis-Smith, Professor Katrina Jackman and Annette Fisher talking about CQ Action, Adaptations at Work. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. <laughs>